logically, it seems like if you just get enough stuff on your CV or in your portfolio, you should be able to outrun this, but it appears to be the opposite is true. And I suspect the reason for that, and this relates to what you're saying about being a kid and the music, is you know the, the higher you climb, the more you're expected to know. So the longer you've been into the music world and learning and practicing and doing, the better you quote unquote should be. And so the harder you are on yourself when you still don't feel like you're good enough. That was Jill Stoddard, and this is Mentally Flexible. Welcome to Mentally Flexible, where we have meaningful conversations to help you build mental flexibility. I'm Tom Parks. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and in each episode, I'll be talking to people who inspire me most on topics related to psychology, mental health, and creativity. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll better understand yourself, others, and the world around you. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. My guest today is Jill Stoddard. This is Jill's second time back on the podcast, and this was a great one. Um, For those of you who don't know Jill, she's a psychologist, writer, TEDx speaker, award-winning teacher, peer-reviewed act trainer, and co-host of the popular Psychologist Off the Clock podcast. Uh, Jill is the author of three books, The Big Book of Act Metaphors, Be Mighty, and her new one, Imposter No More, Overcome Self-Doubt and Imposterism to Cultivate a Successful Career. Her writing has appeared in places like the Washington Post and Psychology Today, and she regularly appears on other podcasts and media outlets. Some of the topics we explore include, of course, her new book, Imposter No More, how and why Jill opens up about her own struggles in the book, learning that can come from our fears coming true, the history of imposter syndrome and why it makes sense, the different strategies people use to try to cover up their imposter thoughts and feelings, the challenge and value of being vulnerable in a public way, some skills and exercises that people can use to work on and understand their imposter-related challenges, um, and the importance of learning how to accept discomfort. Uh, this was such an interesting and fun conversation with Jill. I absolutely love her new book, Imposter No More. It took away so much from it through hearing about her personal story, better understanding where imposter thoughts and feelings come from, and learning some practical skills to use myself as well as with clients. Jill's a really inspiring person, and I highly suggest you all check out this new book if any of this resonates with you. And if you haven't heard the first time Jill was on, I recommend you go check that out too, um, because that was another great conversation. Thanks again, Jill, for doing this. Um, And thank you all the listeners for being here and uh, continuing to support the show. If it's your first time, welcome. Got some more great episodes planned coming up and uh, can't wait to share them with you. If you want to support the show, you can uh, leave a review on Apple or iTunes. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Mentally Flexible or just keep listening. Uh, so, yeah, thanks again, everyone. And let's get into the conversation with Jill Stoddard.
I love your book. I'm like 70% through. And I love it because it has this uh, interesting dynamic that I haven't really seen much where it's almost like half novel and memoir and half self-help practical stuff that keeps you really motivated to keep reading in this cool way. And plus you just oh, have good. a great, you have a great writing style. So thank you. I've, I've just been really interested in reading it. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I've noticed the, the more I write, the more of me shows up in the book, which makes it that much more vulnerable to put out in the world. So I find the positive feedback is like very soothing because it's, it's just more nerve wracking, you know? Mm, yeah. You definitely open up a lot and it shows a lot of courage and, and I put myself in your shoes and I'd love to be able to get there somewhat someday, but it feels like there's a, it's a process you have to go through to let yourself open up more and more over time, yeah. I bet. Well, you know what I think really helped me is people who you know too who have modeled this. So Kelly Wilson mm-hmm. and um, Ricky Kelgard, you know, there are people who really just get super vulnerable and authentic in front of large audiences. And it's so inspiring to me. I know how much it touches me and how much it helps me to learn. Um, and I see that other people respond to it. So that fear that you're going to be judged or they'll see you as, you know, hysterical or, or whatever it is. Like, you know, that doesn't happen with them. So maybe I can try to open up a little bit more too. And it's certainly been a process over a number of years, I would say. Mm. Um, but, but it ends up being rewarding. I mean, when I give talks and workshops, those where I am the most me and vulnerable and open and authentic are the ones I get the most positive feedback from. I just, I think we need to like connect as humans first and foremost. Mm. It, you know what I mean? Like before we just sort of like, put information on people. Mm, Yeah, it's definitely still, there's ultimately that little leap of faith you have to take. And it's interesting. I wonder like there's, there are both choice points in like real time with people of being able to take that leap of faith into vulnerability. But when you're right there in front of somebody, there's more of this, um, you know, uh, real time nature of it. And I imagine like writing a book, there's so many, choice points throughout that process of like, do I share this thing or do I share this Mm -hmm. part of it? Do I share all of it? And then the actual decision to let the book out. It's like, there's so much more time to become hyper aware of those moments. Oh, for sure. And I will say early drafts of the book had more in it and it was unnecessary detail, but I did end up kind of pulling it back a little because I'm like, this is, it's not a memoir Mm -hmm. and it's not about you. Like it's really only, you know, whatever information is going to be helpful to readers to internalize these messages is what's necessary. Um, but I, I did, I, I was grateful that I had the space to play with that a little bit versus, you know, there's no impulsively mm-hmm. kind of blurting anything out, thankfully, when you're writing a book, cause you can make a lot of decisions along the way and mm. have many drafts, thankfully. Yeah. But you can <laughs> in a podcast. So maybe we'll get that today. No, I'm just kidding. There you go. Like I'm an open book. Tom. <laughs> the, open uh, book. The uh, one of the recent chapters, you shared a story about being invited to that author's dinner. And I think that was a great example of sharing something personal that was really beneficial for the reader, because I was able to, after reading that, put myself in so many different moments of my life where I felt like I didn't belong and how moving through that initial discomfort, you realize you end up in a place where you really do feel like you belong, but you have to go through that short-term discomfort. You want to share that story? Yeah. So when I wrote my first book, the book 
big book of act metaphors, uh, my, my publisher at the time, New Harbinger, hosted an author dinner at the conference for the Association of Contextual and Behavioral Sciences. And um, this New Harbinger's gotten much bigger and they don't do this anymore, but this is when it was still small, probably 10 years ago at this point. And they sent out um, an evite to the authors. And I opened the evite. And of course, in an evite, you can see who, who else is invited. And I see all of these names of huge people in the ACT community, all of my professional heroes. And I, I like just started sobbing. Like mm. I had this really overwhelming emotional response. I've never had a panic attack, but it was probably like as close to a panic attack as you could get. Just very overwhelmed. And I, I thought that like, I, I can't do this. I don't belong here. Like I am not one of them. It's, it's not my place to be. And, you know, thankfully because of act and psychological flexibility, I made space for all of that anxiety and self-doubt. And I went to this event and, um, do you want me to tell the whole thing? Yeah, about it's being fu- it's the, funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm, we have caught, this is in Berlin and we had cocktails before and I met Matt McKay, who's a well-known person in the ACT community, um, has written many books, and we introduce ourselves. And he was the he was listed as the host on the Evite. And I said, well, how, how come you're listed as the host? And he just sort of looked at me like I had three heads and was like, because it's New Harbinger? And I was like, yeah, no, I know it's New Harbinger, but, but how did you get roped into hosting it? And he really is looking at me like with the most puzzled expression on his face, and he says because it's my publishing company. (laughs) And I had no idea. And I felt like such an idiot. And of course, in the moment, and I'm blushing like crazy. And in the moment, to me, this just like confirmed that I was a fraud and Mm -hmm. that I didn't belong. But I hung in there and we had a laugh. And, you know, he said to me, who are you? And luckily I didn't say, oh, I'm no one, because that was kind of the thought in my mind. But I told him I co-wrote the Big Book of Act Metaphors with Nilo Afari. And thankfully he said, oh, we love this book. And he admitted that he wasn't so sure about it when we first pitched it, but that Steve Hayes had actually, um, you know, really, really encouraged New Harbinger to take it on. Um, and, And it was more successful than Matt McKay thought that it would be. And so we had this sort of funny but also positive meeting. And in a way, you know, I think it was a good thing that it didn't go perfectly because I really learned that because like usually the bad things you think are going to happen don't happen. In this case, it did. And it was fine. Mm. It was okay. Right. Like I was fine. Mm -hmm. We had a lovely conversation. And then when I went into the dinner, I ended up sitting with some of these, you know, Kirk Strosall and other of these big professional people. And Kirk Strosall starts, you know, using very colorful language, let's say. Mm. Um, And we all sat around talking a little bit about professional things, but mostly about travel and family and goals. And it was just such an incredibly fun night Mm. that, you know, if I had let those thoughts and feelings dictate what I was going to do, I would have missed out on a really rich and meaningful experience. Mm. And then of course I went back the next year and it was a little bit easier. And by the third year, you know, I was calling these people my friends and it was much, much easier Mm. at that point. Mm. Yeah. I love that. And I love how you said in there too, that even 
though it didn't go perfectly, that's okay. And we learn from that too. Like when we encourage clients, I'll work a lot with clients with OCD. And when we're doing exposure work, it's not like we're exposing you to a situation and we're guaranteeing you your fears aren't going to come true. You know, sometimes there's learning and even things not going well. And it's a cool perspective to take on it. I think there's more learning when things don't go well, you know, and, and I don't know about you, but I even often do exposures where we deliberately create the negative outcome, or we at least try, like, especially with social anxiety, you know, go out and do something that's so seemingly out of the norm of what we would expect to happen. And even then, you know, I had a guy walking, this was in Boston. I had a guy walking around Kenmore square with his clothes on backwards, his hair all messed up. Asking for people, asking people for directions to Kenmore Square in mm. Kenmore Square, <laughs> and nothing bad happened, you know. Yeah. And like the oh, honey, you're in Kenmore Square. Can I help you find anything? <laughs> like people were so kind, and I mean, it just we try to make these, you know, rejection or judgments happen, and even then they don't. And you know, I've I've had clients when they've had the worst outcome, very easily be able to say, oh, I get it. The worst thing happened and it wasn't that bad and I could handle it. And they're really grateful for having that experience, even though it's a little bit painful, but it's never as painful as they think it will be. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, that that story that you just shared is part of the the arc of you walking through um, concepts in your new book, Imposter No More. And so I guess to digress on that, uh, a lot of this is part part of your work is founded in dropping the uh, syndrome and imposter syndrome and mm-hmm. looking at it from a new perspective. So would you want to maybe lay some of the groundwork for that? Yeah, sure. Well, really, the, the two women who initially identified this phenomenon, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes, way back in 1978, they called it the imposter phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And at that time, they thought that it only occurred in high achieving women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we now know that 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 isn't the case. But at the time, that's what they thought. And I just think it's fascinating. You know, think of the timing, late 70s, early 80s. So this thing comes out into the world among successful women. And our culture rebranded this phenomenon as a syndrome, a mm-hmm. disease, a disorder, a pathology. And I don't think that's an accident. I think that's proof of sexism, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's one reason that I don't think it should be a syndrome. It seems to be the case that people who have a history of marginalization may be more vulnerable to having these thoughts and feelings, which of course, right? If you've been told you don't belong at the tables, you're going to question whether you belong at the tables. Um, And it's incredibly common And, you know, the research on this is not great. And the prevalence rates vary a lot. Like I found between 9% and like 86%. But most of the studies are somewhere between like 40 and 70. But still, that's most of us. Mm. And so it just can't be the case that something that is so common is a disorder or a disease or a pathology. And it certainly shouldn't be called such if it's also a result of systemic bias. Mm. Yeah. So maybe to... uh not assume everybody even understands. I actually was talking to uh, a client of mine today. They came in and they saw your book because you know, I was preparing today and they're asking about it and their idea of what imposter syndrome was, wasn't what we're talking about in this context. So maybe let's like, what do we even mean by what people have called imposter syndrome? 
Yeah. It's always fascinating when someone doesn't recognize it. And I tell the story in the book of, of mentioning it to my dad and he was like utterly yeah. perplexed <laughs> and he's just in that smaller percentage of people who have never had this experience. Um, but what it is, is it's a feeling of intellectual inadequacy or phoniness that exists and persists despite evidence to the contrary. So mm. even when you've had many accomplishments, many achievements, you don't believe yourself to be bright or to be successful, you know, even though we can point to the objective evidence that clearly that's true. Mm. Well, I can definitely relate to that. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then the imposter part is, I guess I should add to the end of that is the, then the fear, like how it shows up is people are going to find out that mm. I'm incompetent, you know, that I'm not as smart as they think I am and I'm going to be revealed as a fraud. And that's really where that, um, you know, the imposter part of the name comes from, the fear of being outed as, as an imposter or a fraud. Yeah, and people can really struggle with this for like their whole lives. Like no matter how much success or validation you get externally, there's still just this like background yeah. fear that one day you're going to be, all your cards are going to be shown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a bunch of different kinds of uh, imposters that you talk about in the book. You don't have to go through each of them, but you know, like the expert and the perfectionist. Yeah. Would, you, would you talk about some or all of those? Yeah. So this is a concept that actually came from um, psychologist Valerie Young, who also wrote a book about imposterism. She's an expert in this area, but we just have very different approaches to what to do about it. Mm -hmm. But she identified these five subtypes and what they, we, for shorthand, we call them subtypes of imposter, but what they really are, are strategies that people use to try to prove that they're competent mm. to avoid being outed as a fraud. Mm. Um, and I can go through them very quickly. You know, yeah. they're, they're outlined in a lot more detail in the book, but the perfectionist, pretty obvious. You just have very high standards. And if you make mistakes or fail to meet those standards, this is like proof that you're a fraud mm. um, in your mind, not yes. in reality. The expert is the person who needs to have more skills, more knowledge, more expertise. So is constantly reading books, listening to podcasts, taking classes, but maybe not doing the thing, like doing a lot more learning than doing. The soloist is the person who thinks asking for help is a sign that you're incompetent or a fraud. And so success only counts if you do it on your own. The natural genius is a person who thinks like you either have it or you don't. You should be able to learn and grasp things after the first time you hear it. It's kind of like Carol Dweck's um, fixed versus growth mm. mindset. And so if you don't grasp everything easily and quickly, this is proof that you're incompetent and a fraud. Mm. And then the last one is the superhuman. And this is the person I think I always get an image of this person on a unicycle juggling balls that are on fire. Um, you know, singing a song and smiling and doing this all effortlessly. But of course, at some point, a ball is going to fall and that's proof that you're incompetent and a fraud. And the superhuman thinks, well, if I were really legit, I should be able to balance plates spinning on my nose on top of all these other things I was already doing. Mm, yeah, you're, you're talking about me there. <laughs> is that you? Did you take the quiz? Yeah, yeah. 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 So I have a quiz for listeners. I have a quiz on my website where you can determine what your subtype is. And it's just at jillstoddard.com slash quizzes. So I'm the expert. Mm. And I think the two most common I've seen in the mental health community have been expert and superhuman. Mm. So what does the expert look like for you? Like how getting inside of that in your own world? 
Oh, goodness. This was a reveal I actually felt pretty uncomfortable about in the book Mm. because I go through literally... So when I started writing, not my professional writing, but I started doing more creative writing and I have never done creative writing. And so I I was... It's not that I was an imposter. It's that I was a... I was new to it, Mm. right? But I felt like a fraud. And so I... I don't know the numbers, but you know, they're in the book, but I listened to every writing podcast, you know, the back catalog of every writing podcast. I think I read like seven books on writing, took a bunch of classes, hired experts to help me. And when I went through and added up, what I should do is add up all the time I spent because it would have been hundreds of hours. And I spent like $20,000 and I am not a wealthy person. Like Mm. I'm fine. I'm comfortable. I have privilege, but I'm not a person who just has 20 grand sitting around that I can, that I can go spend on whatever I want. And so I think, you know, the cost of this is there's nothing wrong with learning. Let me say that first. I, I think people will sometimes ask that, well, isn't, you know, development and learning skill building, isn't that a good thing? Yes. But the cost is focusing on that without doing the doing. And then there can be this literal cost of both time, which is a very precious resource and money. Mm. And, you know, I didn't even realize it was that much until I decided to add it up for the book. And even I was like, oh my goodness, this is, this is a marked problem. And it is time for me to recognize I am expert enough Mm. and I can move forward without continuing to gather more and more because it's, it's, you know, I always get the image of a cup where you're pouring liquid into a cup, but there's a hole in the bottom. So it's, it's never filled up. It's Mm. never topped off. Right. Mm. It's just never enough. Wow. So the, the engine underneath that for you is this idea that if I just learn enough, then I'll feel competent or then I, this feel, or maybe it's the other way, then these other feelings will go away or these other things I think about myself. Yeah. It's both of those. Yeah. Yeah. I all, I, I will no longer feel like a fraud and I will finally feel legitimate and competent. And, you know, so far that still hasn't happened. Even, even after writing a third book, I still don't feel like a real writer. And in fact, my first, when I first proposed the book, the title was not a real writer mm. and it was going to be a book about imposter syndrome in writers. Mm. And my agent thought it was like a little bit too niche. And so we broadened it to, for all professionals, which I'm really glad we did, but you can tell by a lot of the examples, my personal examples, many of them do relate to writing. And I suspect, you know, again, this is, I don't have the research to support this, but I suspect this shows up strongly in creative endeavors, right? Like where it's your side hustle and it's maybe not supporting you financially and you're putting yourself out in the world for critique, but creative endeavors are subjective, right? There's always going to be people who don't like what you're producing and that can be really challenging. No, a hundred percent. This shows up a lot in the arts and creatives. I was working with a client today. It's such an easy trap to feel like you're, you can't, you're just one, uh, area of learning away from being able to take the step to do the thing or show somebody or pursue the project that you want. But it just keeps moving a little bit further out each time you learn the next skill. Totally. Exactly right. Yeah. 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 It's such a hard trap to get into because then, yeah, I mean, it's actually funny how it connects to, uh, today so much, like everything's synced up on this day, but something that happened to me this morning is I recovered, uh, 
a bunch of music that I recorded from the ages of like 13 to 20 years old that oh, I would, wow. that I thought I lost. And it was such a, a fun and cringy thing to go back and <laughs> listen to about yeah. how just over, overly earnest some of these lyrics are and stuff. But anyway, it's like, you know, it took at that time, and this connects to an idea you had about kids being more psychologically flexible. There was such more of like an innocence and an openness for me to just do something I was bad at. Because, man, some of this is really cringy. But yeah. when we're kids or when we're younger, it's almost we give ourselves much more permission to step into that stuff, even when we're not good. Where an, we're an adult or if I was to just start music today, it'd be so much harder to confront the cringiness stage of just starting to write music. Oh, absolutely. Well, the thing that really interested me the most that, you know, where the reason I really started to dive in and study this is it wasn't the presence of these thoughts and feelings, which I think makes sense when you're starting something new. Um, it was that they don't go away with success. Mm. Right. And in fact, imposter quote unquote syndrome is correlated with success. It's positively correlated. So the more successful you get, the more likely you are to have these thoughts and feelings. And I just found that fascinating because logically it seems like if you just get enough stuff on your CV or in your portfolio, you should be able to outrun this, but it appears to be the opposite is true. And I suspect the reason for that, and this relates to what you're saying about being a kid and the music is, you know, the, the higher you climb, the more you're expected to know. So the longer you've been into the music world and learning and practicing and doing the better you quote unquote should be. Mm. And so the harder you are on yourself when you still don't feel like you're good enough. Yes. Yes. Uh, definitely. Cause yeah, with music, none of those thoughts or feelings have gone away. They're just, uh, right. as Ram Dass calls these things, uh, Ram Dass has a funny joke, but reality talks about where he's like, you know, I've, I've taken all these psychedelics. I was a Harvard psychology professor. I, Pastor, I spent all this time in India. I meditated for 20 years. And you know what? Not one of my neuroses have gone away. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he was like, but now when they come in, instead of being these big monsters, I call them little schmooze. They're just like these oh, little. I love it. So anyway, yeah, that's like uh, how I feel uh, about it. But yeah, part of what you're saying too is, and that related to your own story about getting into a PhD program, something that really trips people up, myself included, is a lot of our success is inevitably tied up in collaboration with other people because we're part of yeah. networks and systems and other people and uh, things contribute to our success and they can get us really hung up when we sort of diminish our own success or invalidate our own success because other people helped us get there and they mm -hmm. feel like things that really hold us up from honoring where we're at in the present fully. And you, right. that was something you struggled with around grad school. Would you be willing to share about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I got into graduate school, it was a competitive program that I just never in a million years thought that I would get into. Um, but pr prior to getting accepted, I applied and I was living in San Diego at the time. And the program is in Boston at Boston University. And I didn't tell my family because I didn't want any pressure to come home. I mean, even though I was like, well, I'm not going to get in, so it doesn't matter, but I'm just not going to tell him. And then the guilt sort of ate away at me. And I confessed to my dad, oh, I'm applying to Boston University to work with um, Dr. David Barlow. And my dad goes, Dave Barlow, the psychologist? And my dad is this like business entrepreneur guy who doesn't know anything about mental health. And 
I was like, yeah. And he goes, oh, I've played golf with him. Mm. And it turned out they belonged to the same golf club. They had played a number of times. And the next time my dad saw Dave at golf, he said, oh, my kid's applying to your program. And, you know, fast forward a handful of months and I got in and that was over 20 years ago. And I swear to you to this day, I still worry that my dad is the only reason I got in. Wow. And, and I know logically, like the way that I can logically think about this is that is really offensive to Dave Barlow, right? Mm. Like he let 12 people into a program and there were, I don't know, seven or 800 applicants or something like that. And do I really think that he is of the character that he's just going to like let his golf buddy's daughter (laughs) in? But see, then my brain goes, but yeah, maybe your dad like paid him a ton of money. But again, I'm pretty sure Dave Barlow doesn't take bribes, but like my brain just can't settle in a place where I feel confident that I deserved my place there. Mm -hmm. And then I think what you're speaking to is the next steps. Like, let's say, you know, nepotism's a thing, right? And like, let's say that uh, because my dad knew Dave, that got my foot in the door, mm-hmm. right? Like that's very possible. Maybe it made it more likely that my um, anonymous file became not so anonymous, mm-hmm. right? Like it may have increased my chances of getting my foot in the door. But I was the one that then succeeded in the program, mm-hmm. right? I'm the one who has gone on to run a successful business and and write yes. books and do a TEDx talk. And so like, even if you had some assistance with those first steps, the rest of those things, you know, you're earning on your own. And yet that imposter voice, it doesn't make that imposter voice go away. Totally. Yeah. And even if that was the case, it could, in our minds, that could sort of grow and completely color all the next 20 years after that as if that's, that's exactly yeah. right. I, I had a conversation with Jonah Paquette, who I'm not, I don't know if you know him, but he's an awesome guy and psychologist. And um, he's got a great podcast, The Happy Hour, that's new, that's similar to our psychology podcast um, with Supriya Gill. And, and we were talking about these things. And he was talking about how he got into a very competitive college on a scholar, on a soccer scholarship. Mm. And he's 100% certain he got in on a soccer scholarship, not for his academics. And that, that is somewhat difficult to know, but then the rest of his success has been earned by him. Right. And being able to sort of make that break, even if you got in because of affirmative action or what do you call it? If you're a legacy, if you're on a sports scholarship, if nepotism, you know, somebody put in a good word for you, that's not necessarily problematic, but then we, we do struggle you know, we need to let those next 20 years of accomplishments count rather than continuing to tell the story. Mm. Like, oh, but I only got in because of this and I've just been fooling them the entire time. Yes. Yeah. And if you want to, anybody can sort of tear through their successes and find ways that that was done in collaboration with other people. And if you really, if you really let your mind uh, anchor onto that as to the reason why you're successful or you wouldn't be successful without that, it can really trip you up. It can. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious now that you, you wrote in this book and you you shared a lot of vulnerable things to help, you know, readers relate more. And even today now in this podcast, I've asked you to share them again. Is it hard? It like once it's out there in book form and you know, I've already read this, like, is it easier to then talk about it or is it still feel like a vulnerable thing that you have to 
work through in the moment here. No, it feels vulnerable. It feels easy to talk to you, but I know there are other people listening to this who haven't heard it. And so even fun, funnily enough, I don't know why, but saying that $20,000 figure was like very, <laughs> I thought, oh God, everyone's going to listen to this and be like totally judging me. And so no, it's still really hard. I, I worry about my dad reading the book because there's some stuff in there about mm the way that I was raised and my parents, I, my dad and I are very close. I adore him. My mom has passed. Um, but you know, there were some things that happened when I was younger and I talk about them in the book that they called me tubby and little tubette and tubby tubby two by four and were very focused on my weight and my body. And that was harmful. Mm -hmm. And I haven't really taught, you know, my mom is gone, as I said, but I haven't ever talked to my dad about this wow. and he bought the book and I'm like kind of hoping he doesn't read it. You know, it's like a lot of people don't write memoirs till after their parents die. And they're, you know, like there's, a, there's a reason for that. And I've been to memoir workshops and things. And, and everyone always asks, how do you write about people who are still around in, in this way? And But then I even worry about, even though my mom has passed, I worry about her friends reading it mm. and being mad at me. You know, that I'm saying things that aren't totally positive and kind. So it is definitely, it is, it is definitely a, a vulnerable and, and scary thing, but also important. And, you know, for me, this is all values driven and it's really important to me to be authentic and open and vulnerable, even though it's hard and it's scary. And I'm sure that some people will be upset or will criticize me, but that's okay because mm. I think just as many or, or maybe hopefully more people will be touched by these stories and it will help them, mm. you know, in their own lives. And that's, that's really the whole point of doing this. Yeah. yeah I mean, not to make you too, uh, well, I'll trigger your imposterism right now. Uh, yeah. I really admire that about you. Like I really admire how you wrote this book and you're able to talk about these things. So like, fluidly and sincerely because I, I, I can't, well, not, I can't, yeah. it's the right word. I struggle with that. You struggle or you can't yet. Yeah. The power of yet back to that growth mindset. And I, I mean, you know, I think I'm a fair amount older than you and have been doing this a little bit longer. And, and I certainly was not doing this early in my career. And I think, you know, it, this may be different in different industries. I don't know, but at least in the academic side of psychology, it's often not safe to mm. put yourself out there in these ways and to be vulnerable. Um, and, you know, I, I do really think that it's been very much a developmental process mm. for me. And, you know, I'll never forget the very, it was years ago that I don't know how many, but like years ago I was doing a guest lecture and I shared a story that I hadn't shared publicly before. And I cried and I, I, well, it wasn't planned. It just happened. And oh my gosh, Tom, I was so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I had never done that before. And, and I knew I was going to share the content. I just didn't know I would get so emotional. And do you know, two people in that talk in their evaluations, first of all, they were probably the highest scored evaluations I had ever gotten. And two people compared me to Brene Brown. Wow. <laughs> right? Like that's a pretty freaking high compliment as a person who wants to be a public speaker in this world. Yes, And that was such a, and of course I was like, I am nothing like Brene Brown. She's amazing. I am not, you know, my brain did all those things that brains do. And yet it was such a gift to me because even if I couldn't fully take that in, 
I knew it was okay for me to show up in that way and that there wasn't going to be some big, scary catastrophe. Mm. And that was kind of that. So I think if you start to take like baby steps, you'll have that same experience. And then I, it's still not easy, but my willingness to do it has increased over time because the experiences have been positive. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the reality of like thousands of people hearing what you say though, is like, yeah, if, if the mics were off right now, when we were having a conversation one-on-one, there's no problem with that muscle in me of opening up. It's yeah. you get a little, but there is a, a lot of value in it. And that's why I admire that you do it. And I want to move more in that direction. Cause something Kelly Wilson uh, said when I had him on here was talk about imposterism. I had Steve Hayes and Kelly Wilson were one and two of my podcast. It was such a bold thing to do, but I felt it so much. Then. That's amazing. Uh, but, See, and they said, yes, yeah. and you had a great interview, right? It's what you miss a hundred percent of the chances you don't take. Good for you for doing that. Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott, for anybody who gets the office reference, but, um, but yeah, when he, uh, he was saying that, you know, when we conceal parts of our vulnerability, there's like an undertone of violence in there because we're sort of, um, it's almost violence to other people because then they're going to look at us as if we don't have those same problems. Um, I'm not, I'm not um, being very articulate about, the, articulate about this, but do you know what I mean by that? That like I when do. we conceal parts of ourselves it's almost like a violence towards others and them feeling more alone or isolated in their suffering. Yeah. Yeah, He said something in a workshop I went to that was about, it was actually a whole kind of exercise, but the, the, the kind of take home message was if you didn't have these experiences, these difficult, emotional, challenging experiences, then how could you show up for the people that you care about when they have those experiences. Mm. Right. And that like, like if my daughter or my son has these feelings of self doubt and anxiety and, and all of it, you know, I can't be there for them in the best way if I'm not willing to connect with them over having shared those same kinds of experiences. Mm. And, and I think even just, you know, that requires a level of vulnerability, but it's, I guess I just think of it as like, how can I, follow those values and use that vulnerability in a way to be there for other people. Cause you know, it's also Kelly Wilson that says we all have a secret and it's the same secret. Mm. And it's that common humanity that like we all walk around with that. I'm not good enough story, every single one of us. Mm. And I think the more that we talk about it and share it, it just humanizes this experience and it makes people feel less alone. You know, we've got this like epidemic of loneliness in this country right now. Mm. Um, and it's, it's important to be able to show up. And, and I think for me, what I want most is for people to, if people see the things that I've accomplished and they go, wait, you've done that stuff, but you feel this way too, then maybe I can do the things I want to do. Mm-hmm. Right. If like, like I feel this way and I feel like I can't do these things, but wait, you feel this way too. And you have done these things. So maybe I can't do. And I just spoke at the, um, innovations and psychotherapy conference in orange County, which was wonderful, by the way, it'll, it, I think this was the first annual, but I recommend it for Mm. clinicians for next year. Um, amazing keynote speakers. It was just so great. And, um, I had so many people come to my, you know, my book signing after I did my talk on, on imposterism 
And I had so many people say, you know, what you said about the book and the this and the this, I've wanted to write a book. I've wanted to do this. I've wanted to do that. And I wouldn't. And now I'm going to. Like they came and they verbally committed to me that they were going to start taking these steps because of, you know, the messages that are in this book and, you know, the messages I gave in the talk, which are messages that are, that are in the book. And that was just like, that, that is just the best thing I could ever hope for. That's what I want people to read the book and go, Oh, all the ways that I've been stuck, I'm now willing to go take risks and do these things because I, I read this and I just, Oh, wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. I guess that's like the power of other forms of the work that we do. You know, I've, I really only have ever seen myself as adding value as like a therapist one-on-one, but there's a lot of opportunities to use a platform like this or writing or giving talks as a way to really reach more people. And there are really sincere ways that the ways we show up and talk about our experience can have profound ripple effects on others. Absolutely. And, and for me, I've really, you know, I recognize that like not everybody has the resources to come see me for therapy, right. Mm -hmm. Or, or desire. (laughs) And so, you know, podcasting and and writing and these are ways that people without resources can Mm -hmm still benefit from this same information. And that feels really important to me. And of course, like we all have a job and we all have to pay our bills, you know, like I can't give therapy away for free because I wouldn't be able to pay my mortgage, but this is kind of my way of trying to make this information accessible to more people. Mm -hmm. Talking about therapy and clients and stuff. One of the things you wrote about in the book was something you're a client of yours said about wanting to be a disco ball. I love, I love that. You want to share that? Yes. You know, I actually had a session with her today and I said, you're, and and she's given me permission to talk about this, you know, anonymously, but I said, you're sort of famous because I just published an article in the Washington post and I talked about the disco ball and she was like, Oh my God. When I, when I read the paragraph from the book to her, you know, I shared it before I gave it to the publisher. I got her permission to publish it the way I'd written it. And when I read it to her, we both cried. And so basically what happened is we were doing a values exercise and it's one of my favorites, which is an epitaph where you think about what your, what your, what you would want your epitaph to read if you had lived your values. Right. So like, uh, here, here lies Tom, he learned how to get vulnerable, even Mm. though it was really hard and scary Mm. for him. Or here lies Tom. He kept all of his private stuff to himself because he was scared (laughs) people would judge him. (laughs) Right? Like, (laughs) so this is the exercise. And it's like this really quick and easy way to go, oh, yeah, if I wrote it now (laughs) versus what I would want it to be, there's a discrepancy there. And that gives me some ideas about how I might want to move my feet a little bit differently, right? Mm. So when I was doing this with this client, she was kind of had this look on her face. I'm like, what, what's going on? Like she looked a little confused and like she wanted to say something, but she was like shy because she wasn't sure she had it right. So I give her so much credit for taking that risk. And we did talk about the day and she confirmed, yes, that's exactly what was happening. And she said, well, I just like the words just aren't coming to me, mm. but I keep getting a, an image of a disco ball in my head. And I was, you know, as a therapist, I'm like, Ooh, this is juicy. Tell me more. Right. And she said something like, well, you know, when you think about what a disco ball is made of, it's just a bunch of broken pieces of glass that alone are just little broken pieces of glass, but put together in a disco ball, 
they shine and sparkle Mm. and they reflect light back Mm. at people. Mm. And she wanted to be someone that shined and sparkled and that reflected light back at people. And then she said something, you know, that they were also like fun and around in like celebration and, and playful. And, you know, there were just so many values Mm. represented in this image of a disco ball. And so, you know, now for her, when she's kind of at a point where she needs to make a choice about, you know, what to do or what not to do, she can sort of think about like, if I'm being the disco ball, what would this choice look like? Oh, I love that. I know. That's such a great, great, that's such a great image. Mm. Isn't it amazing the things that clients, I guess just humans fundamentally, but in the work that we do as clients, uh, like the things that they'll come up with that are just like Ugh. so meaningful and come from almost just like deep in their bones that yes. when, when there's a space of like openness and you ask the right question or you hold the right space, it's a great example of that. I mean, it is like, I have several things that have come from clients that I have gone on to use with more clients. Like my clients are helping my clients without even realizing they're helping each other Mm. because everything they come up with is brilliant. It's like better than what I come up with. Mm. So good. Wow. One of those things that I guess has like a a little, uh, another part of it before I lead into it, you shared a moment with a client uh, that happened. It's such a familiar feeling as a therapist when like a client says something that makes you feel totally questioned if you like didn't know something about them that's like super important yeah. and your whole like world turns upside down. You're like, oh my God, did I not know they had kids or like yeah. this thing about them? And you <laughs> have to like, <laughs> you have to scramble. But one of those that ended up not being the case that relates to what we're just talking about was uh, WWJD. You want to share that? Yeah. I just got goosebumps when you said that. So this was a client many years ago who came into session really pumped because she'd had like a really successful week with her committed actions. And when I asked her, you know, what it was that really helped her to be able to follow through with these things, she said, well, you know, every time I had to make a choice, I just thought WWJD. And of course this normally means what would Jesus do? And as I'm off on a spiral thinking, oh my gosh, she's religious. How did I not know this? I'm the worst therapist in the world. She quickly rescued me and said, you know, what would Jill do? And I was like, oh, thank goodness. Not the worst therapist. And so she went on to explain that she, you know, she just like kind of carried me on her shoulder Mm. and thought, well, what would Jill do? Or what would Jill tell me to do if I were here? And so she said, I just did that. Mm. And I loved that. And so now I use that with all my clients and in all my talks where I let them pick their J, right? So I don't say, everybody think what Jill would tell you to do, (laughs) but just who is your J? And it could be Jesus, it could be Jill, or it can be anyone. It can be a person from your life who you know, you know, a coach, a grandparent, whatever. It could be a celebrity who you feel like you know, or it could even be a fictional character. I have lots of people pick Harry Potter characters and I've never read or seen Harry Potter. Hmm. So I probably should so that I can, so that I know who these people are. Um, and you know, so for me, my J is, oh, it's Oprah Mm. because Oprah, you know, has, has overcome like every obstacle you could ever possibly throw at a human and has never let it stop her. Um, and as far as I know, you know, uses her money and power to make the world a better place. And so when I find myself in those really difficult choice moments, I think, well, what would Oprah do? Mm. Or what would Oprah say? Mm. Wow, that's and it's cool. really helped me with some pretty big decisions. 
Yeah, when I was reading that, it gave me new, a new model and language for something I had already, I already do with myself. And so mine would be WWTTD. And it would be, what would therapist Tom do? Because I realized what I had oh. been doing, uh, something I've really integrated into my life that has been really helpful and not that I live up, do it, lived up, live up to it perfectly. But when I'm outside of work, I almost just imagine like the version of me that I'm show up as for my clients and that I encourage them to step into and I try to model, like, how do I live that out outside of work? And like, if a client was oh my watching, God, I me, love that. Yeah. If a client was watching me, like, how would I want to show up right now? Would they like, yeah. do I want to see, have them see me like doom scrolling through my phone while I like eat over the sink or should I like right. sit down? And- I would like, I would like for them maybe to see me practicing what I preach. Yes. And that's what their therapist Tom would do. I love that. That's great. Yeah. So all these like little tools are uh um really helpful you had another one about like taglines that i loved mm-hmm. right. right that's for the people who you know maybe don't like the death stuff <laughs> you know if you feel a little bit weary about epi- epitaphs um or eulogies you know some of these other strategies we use to think about yeah, death is a good way to think about what you want your life to look like it's coming <laughs> for every one of us right and when we when we recognize that death is coming, it can help us to think about like, how do I want to live with this one life that I've got? But you know, for people who prefer a more, a more positive take, instead of the epitaph, you can do a tagline, right? Like just do it, but you come up with your own. Like I like work hard, play harder. Mm. Yeah. That's fun to keep. Yeah. That's like a nice way to just capture how you care about both of those things, but you don't Mm -hmm. want the, like the seriousness of life to outweigh the playfulness. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So I guess in, um, and I still have some of the book to read, which it, so there's, I'm excited to see what the rest of it shows, but if people are listening and they really resonate with this and understand the predicament of how this impo- these imposter thoughts and feelings and fears are around, what's, what's like the terrain forward for somebody? Mm. Well, Reading the book. (laughs) (laughs) See you next time. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, you know, I I tell this story a lot, but I I was asked to go give a talk to some high school students who were, who cared about mental health and improving mental health and reducing suicide rates. And they wanted me to come in and do a talk and give them something that was applicable that they could like walk away with that would help them with their mental health and, and suicidal thoughts. But I only had, 20 minutes. Mm. (laughs) And I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. Easy. So I really had to think about like, well, if there's just one thing that I could teach these kids, teens that I really genuinely think will make a difference in their ability to like move forward in their life in in a, in a positive way, it's getting comfortable being uncomfortable, Mm. right? So like an act, it's willingness or acceptance, the acceptance part of acceptance and commitment therapy but the teens understand they get comfortable being uncomfortable because mm. if you think about all of the things that we you know do or don't do that keep us stuck it's pretty much all about avoiding feelings we don't want to experience mm. yes. right yeah and think about like the the difficult conversations that we could have if we weren't avoiding how uncomfortable that is think mm. about all of the big opportunities or bold moves that we could make if we weren't avoiding like you know the feared outcomes and the anxiety and the worry about rejection and all of it you know i it just it's it's like everything mm. 
Yeah. So that, so that's what, so I would want listeners to, to work on that. And there are lots of like really easy, fun, playful ways to do that, um, that I think are really important to sort of like train and build willingness muscles. Cause if you just tell someone to like, go accept your panic attack, it's not going to happen. Just like mm. if you wanted to climb Mount Everest, but you had never been on a hike before, you're not going to head out to Nepal next weekend. Like you have to do a lot of training. And, you know, so I love to do this in playful ways. And I, I give many examples in the book, but my favorite way, and I've got a, I got a, I have a box of these sitting right in front of me in my drawer is to eat bean boozled jelly beans with my clients, <laughs> which are, do you know this game no. bean boozled? Okay. It, so there's a spinner and you spin the spinner and it lands on a color of jelly bean. They're jelly bellies. And so let's say it's like the pink speckled one. Mm. So, so this jelly bean might be pomegranate flavor or it might be old dirty bandage. <laughs> And you don't know which one you're going to get. And there, is, there are so many emotions that show up, like curiosity, dread, apprehension, anticipation, all before you even do anything. And then as you're eating the jelly bean, and then either you get this like relief when it's a flavor that's not terrible, but also you have like wonder and curiosity because you're like, which one even is this? I don't even know what I'm tasting. And then maybe disgust. I mean, there are so many things that this triggers that you can practice changing your relationship to your emotions where you just, where you open up and you make space and you allow mm. because at the end of the day, it's not a dirty bandage. It's a jelly bean. Mm. And so some of the other flavors are vomit, um, uh, dirty dishwater, mm. dog food, <laughs> liver and onions. I, it's, they're disgusting. And I just did an in-person training and I brought them with me and I was like, ha 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 ha. That is so and fun. It, I didn't make it mandatory. You know, people, people got to consent whether they would play or not, but everybody loved it. It was, it was really, really fun. Wow. I love that. I'm definitely going to integrate that into my practice. That's such a cool, direct, experiential way. Right? Yeah. And, and if you work with kids or teens, of course they love it because they love seeing you do it. You have to do it with them, of yeah, course. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, it can even be values-based because it's something clients can practice at home with their kids. Do you know mm. how much my kids love watching me eat a disgusting jelly bean? <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's so cool because it's just touching that fundamental muscle of making a choice to step into something that you know is uncomfortable, but just being willing exactly. to do it. That's why exactly my I try to find ways to really intentionally do that every day just to get out in front mm -hmm. of and own it. like. In the every day, I just end my shower and put it as cold as possible, and just make that Love really it. uncomfortable choice. Just to like, and I, yep. I've never. It hasn't gone down how much I hate doing it, but just that muscle gets easier to flex of just yeah. being able to do it. Absolutely, and I think the, in, the 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 research on this is fascinating too. That when you you know, they look at groups and they teach them to either accept the discomfort or suppress the discomfort. So in the cold shower example, what would likely happen is people who accept stay in the shower longer and they report less distress about mm -hmm. the painful cold water, mm -hmm. but they report the same level of discomfort as the people in the suppression group. Yes. And that's what all these studies show. Like we're both experiencing the same level of pain, but when we reduce the resistance, we reduce the suffering. Like, you know, that Buddhist pain times resistance equals suffering. Yeah. Pain is just part of being human, Yeah. but we can reduce resistance and reduce suffering. And so you may not feel any more comfortable in that super cold water, but there's less suffering when you're standing there with a willing, allowing, open, accepting stance. And I encourage people to practice that. Practice it the way you normally do it and resist it. And then practice it using some, 
you know, breathing to make space and open and allow and accept. And you, and you do really notice a difference in those experiences. Yeah. Cause like that pretty much shows up that those two different stances of either tensing up and resisting your experience or being open to it is pretty much available all day long in everything that you're doing. Everything. Brush your teeth with the non-dominant hand, you know, put your pants on right leg first. If you normally put them on left leg first, if you always make your you tie your shoes with a left bow and a right wrap around, do it the other way. And it'll be slow. It'll be frustrating. It'll be messy. It'll feel funny. Even folding your hands, you know, I'm folding my hands kind of like prayer fold, mm. just do one finger off <laughs> and you can practice. Right. Yeah. And, and what I always encourage people to do is not only notice the discomfort, but notice the urge to let go, to go back yeah. to the way that feels right. Because that's what we respond to when we avoid that, that urge to, yeah to escape right well yeah well yeah. i wish we had another hour i get again i just want to yeah i really i really loved re reading this book and i can't wait to finish it and uh, i don't know i'm like what's the word that I, sometimes i feel weird using the word proud i don't know i, I just come back to admire like i really admire yeah. you for doing this like saying yeah. i'm proud of you feels like a weird I don't know what other words there are. I have but. totally had that same experience where I'm talking to peers or friends and I, it's the same thing where I'm like, the primary thing I'm feeling is I'm really proud of you. And I know that's weird because I'm like, not your mom, but that, that is like really how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's okay. I think we should practice telling each other that we feel proud of each other. I felt really proud of you when you said you invited Stephen Kelly onto the podcast. That really was the feeling that wow. I was feeling. Yeah, well, thanks. So we can make space and be proud of each other. Yeah, it was really cool, too, because this was like maybe the first time I was reading a book by somebody I knew, and we already had a conversation, and we've connected personally a bit since you've last been on. And so there was this whole new experience for me where I, it for the first time felt realistic that I could do something like this. Yeah. Because you're Good. like a re regular human to me, you know, and not... I'm a regular human. Yeah. I'm a very flawed regular human. So and thank you and for call that. myself a recovering imposter because, you know, I'm still dealing with this on a regular basis. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks so much. And um, I really love talking to you today. So thanks for coming on. Yeah. You too, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. It's got me out of my mind. It's got me seeing trees breathe. It's got me learning how heaven and hell are both inside of me. It's got me feeling the love. That I bottled so deep When the entire world kept feeding on my grief